0: Friends and listeners, and welcome not only to a new episode of the Thoughts Hermes Podcast, but to a completely new season of the Thoughts Hermes Podcast. It's great to be back, it's great to have you back as my audience. Two weeks of summer break or seasonal break because of course our people who listen on the other side of the planet from where I am here in Vienna Austria they had a seasonal break as well here and it was not a summer break yes okay I had a nice summer break and two weeks no podcasts and September 11 it is here today it's about time to go into this new season nine a beautiful lineup of Again, I think it will be 24 new episodes, like the last, last um, season. And um, I'm preparing quite a number of really nice talks with interesting magicians, authors, researchers, etc., etc. A little excerpt of who you can expect in the near future here, you could find already on the webpage and on Twitter and on Facebook. And these were only an example in this order. It's not the order of appearance that you see there. Anyway, so today uh, my guest is Stefan Harding. And we are going to talk about Gaia Alchemy, a book he wrote by that title. But what is Gaia Alchemy, etc. and all that. And it's a pleasure to have him here. It's a little bit maybe different also from other episodes we did here. But you know me now. I like to do... Um, The say mainstream magic or mainstream occultism shows and then there are things that I like which are going a little bit beyond that which have of course always to do with our favorite subject of the western esoteric tradition but um, in that case it's about well probably activism in the sense of saving the humanity and nature, etc. Gaia, of course, you know what Gaia is. Let's talk about that in a moment. Um, for the moment, um, I would like to say hello to those listeners who are here for the first time. I just recently got several emails from people that, oh, I only just discovered this podcast now. So that tells me, please, you guys who are regulars here of the show, do spread the word because it seems as there are still lots of people out there who are really interested in the subject, but who have not yet discovered us here. So, spread the word, make the the family that listens to the Thoughts Hermes podcast grow, and I think it will be for the good of everyone. And uh, speaking about um, support, so thank you for doing that. There are two other ways that you can help the podcast. One, if you're a musician or Uh, Yes, a musician, then, um, as I have told several times, and I have also with success told several times, because I got a lot of good music here for the show from you, the listeners. So if you're a musician, if you have music that you wrote, you performed to share here on the show, I'll be happy to play it. If you send it to me, if you let me know that you are the owner of the rights of that, and I'll be really happy to to. Spread your word as well, speaking about your music. Right. Well, the other way to support this show is, of course, becoming a patron. Thank you to all of those of you who are patrons already, who keep supporting the show or who are new to that. Um, It's really great to have you because without you, the show could not exist. And to make it even more sustainable, please, please consider becoming a show. A supporter, becoming a show, that was nice, becoming a supporter of the show because we need your help, we need your support. Um, Go on the Patreon site, patreon.com and look for the Thought Hermes podcast or go on our website and find the Patreon button there. With $1 per show already, you can start supporting this show and that's not even a coffee a week. Right? Right, so please consider that we need you. Now you're going to say, "Where is the website?" I don't know. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Mm, got you. Here is the website, thoughthermes.com. T H O T H E R M E S dot com. That's where you can find us. Where you can find that famous Patreon button. But of course, there where you can also find all the shows, previous shows, over 140 by now. You can listen to them. You can find the show notes. You can find the show notes of this show. I always suggest you go there because there are always interesting. And my friend Ursula is making a great effort to do those nice texts for the page. So please go there. And I want to thank you here once again for doing that. And uh, send us feedback from the website. You can easily send us feedback with either the the contact form that you find there or even a voicemail that you can send us. Otherwise, it's email, info at com, Twitter, Facebook. Don't be lazy. You can always send us feedback if you want. Okay, and now, as you know who are the regulars, you know that there is always music around here on this show. And of course, also on this episode, we are going to play some music by you and I have played that kind of music before, music that was written by the great Gurdjieff. Uh, you know who Gurdjieff is, of course, and you, many of you know that he was also a musician. And uh, um, lately, in October, I believe, 20, there were performances again of that music um, uh, in in two or three concerts, and it's excerpts from concerts that you can find here on YouTube as well. So uh, Gurdjieff wrote those pieces and Thomas de Hartmann, the Russian composer, orchestrated where necessary. And partly those things are piano solo. And um, we're going to hear two excerpts of that concert in October, in Mexico City, I believe it was. And the very first of those pieces that we hear now is called Religious Ceremony. Religious Ceremony, which is excerpt from Volume 3. It's number 21 of Volume 3 of his piano works. And uh, Liana Bautista is the pianist that you hear with friends uh, on the instruments where needed throughout the show. We play just music from that concert. So now it's Religious Ceremony by the great... George Gurdjieff, Enjoy! Thank mm-hmm. you. George Gurdjieff's Religious Ceremony. George Gurdjieff as a composer is our musical guest, so to speak, on this show, and Iliana Bautista, the pianist, and her friends on the instruments, are performing his music throughout this show. Gaia Alchemy is the title of this episode and the subtitle of the book by the same name that has been published in January this year is called The Reuniting of Science, Psyche and Soul. And that gives you already the the temperature, as I'd like to say, um, of the coming interview with Stefan Harding, author of that book. And um Stefan, he's a P had a, a PhD, has obtained his doctorate in behavioral ecology. I didn't even know that behavioral ecology existed. And he studied at Oxford University. You'll hear his nice British accent when he speaks. And he is, and we speak about that also uh, in the interview, he's one of the founders of Schumacher College, where he is deep ecology research fellow. He will define deep ecology for us as well. And he is senior lecturer in holistic science. So we've had scientists here on the show already. Um, I speak about Dean Radin, for example, who is a scientist and who has those great explanations on why magic is something that science can even explain to a certain extent. And we had scientists who were researchers on the occult. Um, uh, But here we have somebody, uh, an ecologist, and he has discovered that alchemy has to give to his science. He is somebody, and that I would like really to mention here, who studied with James Lovelock. Lovelock, who created the Gaia theory, of course. And uh, James Lovelock, he died on his 103rd birthday uh, about two months ago. A great man. And uh, well, to me, he and his Gaia um, theory were really important, and I think we should all consider a bit more uh, what that means for our nature for our life because we are part of that nature so this is an episode as i said in the intro maybe a little bit different than others because it goes in a field that we do not touch that often but you're gonna see that through the personality of stefan harding it's deeply rooted in what we call the western esoteric tradition and uh Um, it's exciting what he has to say. So depth psychology, Jung, alchemy, all those subjects will come into play with the Gaia theory when we talk about that in this interview. And um, well, without further ado, I'd say I will go and meet with you Stefan Harding. Just know that about 30 minutes into the interview we're gonna break as usual and we're gonna hear more music of george gordiev and um, but now let's go to england let's go to meet dr stefan harding here comes the
1: interview
0: it is my great pleasure here today on the Thought Hermes podcast to welcome Stefan Harding. Stefan, good evening. It's great to have you here with us. Good evening. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be with you. Of course. Pleasure. Pleasure. And well, the immediate reason is a book that you published, I think about a year ago with Inner Traditions, uh, a book titled Gaia Alchemy. And when I then did some research on you as a person, um, I saw that that terminology, bringing those two terms, Gaia and alchemy, together, which is something that I must say personally, I saw for the first time in that context, and that's something that you have been working on for quite some time already, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, a couple of a couple of years, I think it took me to to write that book. Yes, yes, and basically um, it's the reintegration of rationality of and intuition of science and soul so to speak and i think that's a Highly important, highly important subject. Also for those people here on this show who are working a lot in hermeticism and in in those um, fields. And um, I'm really glad that you accepted to speak to us here today. Before we go into the subject itself, Stefan, um, I would be interested to hear a little bit about yourself and your background. What brought you into that very field that we are talking here about and where it all originated, where does it come from in your personal life?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. Well, I'm a scientist by training and a scientific ecologist. And since I was a young boy, I was very, very interested in nature and also very concerned about the way we humans are destroying nature. Mm-hmm. And so that took me into, into uh, biology, and into science at school, you know, physics, chemistry, zoology, and then um, zoology at university. And then I did a PhD at Oxford University on the ecology of the Muntjac Deer. And after that, I taught conservation biology at one of the universities in Costa Rica for, for a few years. Um, and I loved the science and I loved field biology, but I always felt there was something very important missing in the scientific ecology that I was doing. It seemed very mechanistic, very dry, um, very soulless. Um, And so I was trying to find out why science was so soulless. You know, the focus was always on measurement, measurement, quantifying measurement, which is fine. But it was just so one-sided. I noticed that my fellow ecologists love nature as well. But that love of nature didn't really come into the science. You know, the science itself is all very quantitative and very mathematical. Um, and so although I, I enjoyed all of that, I wanted to f- find more wholeness in myself. And also since I was a young, young man for about 1920, I'd been, I'd been, uh, reading Jung quite avidly, um, okay. all that time I was very attracted to Jung. Um, and so, um, gradually my path, um, led me to converge those two interests of mine, Jungian psychology, and also uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which I'm very fond of, and Buddhism in generally, general, and spirituality in general, I suppose, with with science. And this began to happen when I, I helped to found Shumaha College, where I've been working now since 1990. I started. I helped to found Shumaha College right at the beginning. It's part of the Dartington Hall Trust, and the aim of the college is to try and understand the ecological crisis, why, why our culture has created that such a terrible Planetary crisis and how we can heal it. And the first teacher at the college Mm -hmm. was James Lovelock, who, of course, is the author of the Gaia theory, Gaia hypothesis, Gaia theory, a phenomenally powerful and important scientist who's just passed away at the age of 103. And he and I became firm friends, and I started doing science with him, and I started visiting him and working with him. And then I did a a Jungian analysis with a great Jungian here near where I live uh, called Julian David. And it—it it was in his library that I discovered some unpublished works by Jung on alchemy. Um, and then something—something okay. something came up. Some—I got this very powerful energy that I—I I should, my task should be to put uh, the science of Gaia with um, the spirituality or the the uh, psychological insights of alchemy. Maybe that this—this this was the way to unify science and soul, which I'd felt was had been so separated in myself and in our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed, I think uh, you're touching here something which a lot of us who also are engaged in the spiritual world in all kinds of different ways have a feeling about that. And often it creates also a rejection of science among a certain type of yeah. occultist esotericists, which is. I think very regretful because it can only work when those two fields are really working together, and what I would call true hermeticism will always include the scientific world because it's mm-hmm. it's 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 just another way of 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 experiencing it. I I, I guess and. Mm-hmm. Um, but and those, this Jungian approach, I mean, Jung, we all know, he, he wrote quite a bit about alchemy. Um, so you said you discovered uh, writings that he had done and, and that you had for the first time seen in that library. So are they, have they been
1: published in the meantime? They're or, being or published now, but still the volume I published? have is not, has not been published yet. It, it's being published by the Philemon Foundation. <clears throat> the are lectures he gave um, on right. individuation during the Second World War. Um, and I have a mimeographed copy of some of those, one of those lectures, the last set of lectures, which my, my friend Julian gave to me. <clears throat> so it hasn't been published. It will be published eventually, but not yet. And that was also very exciting yeah. to work with a, a very rare mimeo, mimeographed volume of Jung's talks on individuation and alchemy. And, uh, when I was reading that, it was as if Jung was speaking to me directly. Um, that is amazing and i felt very strongly that i i could see how it would be possible to combine alchemy and uh the science of gaia from james lovelock um Mm -hmm. and others before we
0: go into that detail maybe maybe we should try something or you should help us trying something um i often like to ask specialists uh, about their definition of words that we quite commonly use but by that common use they have become Unprecise those terms. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, and I think Gaia in particular. Maybe you can expand a little bit on 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 the origin of that and and what exactly the Gaia theory mm-hmm. includes
1: yeah. in the field, especially that you then use for alchemy. Yeah. Well, let's let's just stick to science to begin with. So, what is what is Lovelock proposing with his Gaia theory? Um, well, the proposal is um, that the Earth has four major components. I'm speaking scientifically now. So it has all the living beings the the, yeah. the biosphere if you like. Then there's um the lithosphere, all the rocks, and the hydrosphere, all the water including the clouds, and then the atmosphere. So four components. And these interact through complex feedback relationships which we can study mathematically to some extent through system science and through cybernetics. So they, they interact through feedback. <clears throat> and Jim Lovelock proposes that when those, when we get those interactions happening, something unexpected emerges from those interactions is what we call in science an emergent property. And the emergent property at the level of the planet is that, uh, sorry, is the ability of the planet as one integrated whole to regulate its surface conditions such as temperature, acidity, distribution of key elements, etc, to regulate those conditions within the very narrow limits that life can tolerate and to do so over thousands of millions of years. So Gaia from a scientific point of view is, um, the, is a, basically it's about the, a, our planet as a self-regulating complex system and the self-regulation arises because of all the interactions between these four components mm-hmm. I've mentioned does that include you just mentioned
0: keeping it in a certain range that will make life possible does that term life in that case mean also human life or is it life in general i mean does that mean that gaia could also react in a way not to need human beings on that
1: planet well that's interesting i mean uh, any organism that destabilizes the global environment if you like Um, Mm -hmm. will experience feedbacks from the wholeness of the planet, from the whole planet, which will reduce its numbers. And in that sense, we are now experiencing classical Gaian feedbacks. One of them is, of course, climate change, which is almost certainly going to wipe out our civilization, not our species probably, but our civilization. Secondly, of Mm -hmm. course, is uh, the coronavirus is a classic Gaian feedback. So we're already experiencing two, two classical Gaian feedbacks because Modernity, I won't say humans as a whole, but modern, we modern humans with our high levels of consumption are triggering feedbacks from the wholeness of the planet which, is, which are, are going to limit our numbers. That's a classical Guyan feedback. Yeah. And it applies to any so, organism that destabilizes the global environment. Not just us. Certainly. Yes. Sure.
0: Of course. Uh, yeah. So everything on both on the positive and negative side should not only be limited to, to human beings. Right. right yeah. yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Um, okay. Now let's move on to this combination with alchemy. Um, in the book that I have here in front of me, you're using different, um, very, very famous alchemical uh, writings and especially images that you have um, brought together with the Gaian theory. I'm explaining that a little bit sur- on the surface. I, I would like you to, to to get a bit more in depth into that question, because I think it's it's a fascinating approach, which I found very you. I had never seen something like that before, and
1: I find it fascinating. Can you can you give our listeners a little explanation and hint on that? Yes. I mean, let's take one of those images you mentioned, which is the, the famous Azov mandala from Basil Valentine. You know, I think many of your listeners will know it. And it Absolutely. shows, it's a very complex image, but in the center, it has a, a mandala structure with seven rays, seven alchemical operations, um, which... Uh, apply to our own psychological development. But I've applied them simultaneously to our psychological development and to the development of any of the major feedbacks in Gaia, in our living planet, and also in the history of the planet. So if you like, I can take you through some of those very briefly. If you Yes, please do. So let's take the first operation, which is calcination. You know burning basically, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with calcination if i' yeah, I'm sure. if I work on that if I work on that image on myself, then of course I have to I have to burn away sort of negative qualities that I have and I'm left with a kind of white ash. so you think I thought to myself, okay and Gaia what what's Gaia's calcination? Well, it's all over the place calcination is all over the place. but let's just take one let's look at the history of the earth in terms of those seven uh, operations. When the planet was first formed, there was tremendous calcination, little lumps of rock that were circling around the newly formed sun before there were any planets. They had to crash into each other uh, to make larger planets, and there was a tremendous amount of heat involved in that. I mean, that's a kind of calcination. Today, you could say calcination is like is plate tectonics. You know, the plates crash together, one plate is subducted beneath another, and it's melted deep down in the earth. That's a kind of calcination. Mm -hmm. You could even Mm -hmm. think of metabolism as a kind of calcination. Burning our food is a kind of calcination. So calcination is there are different levels in in the Gaian system. Um, Then going back to applying these principles to the history of Gaia, the second operation is dissolution. Now, um, in the history of Gaia, that's when the water appeared, so mm-hmm. either from comets from outer space, from, from the asteroid belt, I beg your pardon, or from the inner earth, suddenly the what was once a molten ball of rock becomes a solid ball of rock on the surface with oceans, covered in oceans, covered in water, and that water starts dissolving the rocks, and that's a sort of dissolution. In myself, um, I take those remnants of the calcination and I dissolve them in, in my unconscious and things start to separate out. And that, in fact, leads us to the next operation, which is indeed separation. Um, so I start to discern different aspects of myself that I might not have been aware of before, more positive aspects, negative aspects. In in Gaia, what's happening there is that chemicals that were once in the rock are now being liberated into the ocean water. Um, and if you like, they're starting to, to see each other and to, to know each other. Um, these are the chemicals that are the, the building blocks of life. Uh, they could be sugar molecules, um, amino acids, fat molecules, and they all start to interact with each other, leading mm-hmm. to the next phase, which is which is conjunction. Yes. And conjunction, of course, from a Gaian point of view, is when all these molecules come together to form the first living cell. Uh, we, In science, we call it LUCA, the last universal common ancestor, which gives rise to the bacteria and then to the, eventually yeah. to the whole of life. In myself... It's when I I think it's when I get the first realization of my own wholeness, and in fact, my own wholeness within the body of Gaia, I would say. Um, And then the next stage, um, the next operation is fermentation. And that's when, in Gaia, when all these different microbes start forming um, complex ecologies in which there is literal fermentation. Some of the bacteria die, they sink to the bottom Mm. of the ocean, they're actually fermented by other bacteria and this process helps to regulate the temperature of the earth. And in myself, there's a similar process. I take the insights I've got from, from the conjunction, and I have to sort of let those rot down, and a new spirit arises. And that, that, that gives rise to distillation. And in Gaia, the distillation, I think, is the gradual development of more and more complex ecologies and better skill on the planetary level at regulating surface conditions. And then we reach conjun- uh, coagulation. Sorry, coagulation, sure, yeah. mm-hmm. which I think um, in my case, in my human case, is when I feel myself connected to Gaia. I call that being Gaied. When I realise that I'm mm-hmm. part of this living planetary ecology, that the planet really is alive, it's, I'm, and it's like my wider body. I'm deep inside my own wider body, um, and uh, in Gaia herself, maybe coagulation happens when. We get coherent self-regulation emerging at different times f- because of all these relationships. And also maybe when human consciousness arises, because our consciousness I think is, or any kind of consciousness, um, not just human, but partic- maybe particularly human consciousness, which is very much able to perceive what who Gaia is, and particularly with science. Um, we can perceive the incredible history of Gaia and perceive the feedbacks of Gaia. And I like to think that we offer, through the science, we can offer that back to her. We can we can offer our scientific knowledge back to her. We can tell her story back to herself. And that's a kind of coagulation. So that's roughly how, how I've been trying to work with that in the book, you see. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And in the book also, and
0: I think we have to underline that it's, not only a theoretical book as such, you also offer, um, I would call it path workings, meditations, approaches to certain kind of ritual even that you suggest to to follow through those seven stages
1: and, and what it all implies, right? Yes. I mean, I think, uh, as you say, it's not just theoretical book. I mean, um, mm-hmm. we have to work with these, uh, with this, the Azoth and other, other images that I, I invoke in the book. Yes, yeah, so there are meditations. I, I ask people to find a Gaia place, for example, a place in nature, not too far from where they live, or e- even in their house if they can't go outside with a plant, for example. And just a, a Gaia place where we can spend time relaxing, meditating, breathing, and contemplating, say, the Azoth mandala. In the way I suggest, both as an inner process for oneself and also a process for the planet. And and then if we do this, we it's possible to have this magical experience of the two of them melding together. So we realize that our own psychological development is also Gaia's development over geological time. We start to see the Azoth Mandala everywhere. These, these seven operations are universal. They're happening all the time at different time scales, different spatial scales. But we, we need to do this through contemplation, just just uh, understanding things theoretically is the first step. But to go deeper, we, we have to experience, you know, the experience is absolutely primary and that we have to do through meditation, through contemplation. What you explain here, Stefan is, of course, on the
0: when you leave out the Gaia part of it. It's something that is. Uh, is spiritual alchemy, as one would call it, right? So, um, and you have also the practical alchemist, but, and often in spiritual practice, in occultist practice, spiritual alchemy and practical alchemy are both done together. Um, when you add to that equation, the Gaia terminology, the Gaia thoughts, the Gaia experience that you just did right now, would that also include people who work with alchemy as practical alchemists or only, only, so to speak,
1: uh, spiritual alchemy? Well, both, I think. I I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that we can't do alchemy without ecology. I mean, I don't think, or any spiritual work, that's just purely spiritual for oneself um, is rather limited, I think, especially now in this time of ecological crisis. I think all of us who work in different ways with alchemy, with psychology, with science, we need to balance ourselves and we need to focus on the earth and our relationship with the earth. And I think alchemy can really help us to do that if we combine it with the science of of the earth. So I'm I'm encouraging us to, to work both inwardly, with, uh, with alchemy, either practically or spiritually, but also to, to focus on Gaia at the same time, to focus with na- on nature at the same time and, and using the science of Gaia, because we know so much about how the earth works now that we can, we can get tremendous inspiration and we can, we can maybe bring our culture in this way out of this terribly destructive mode that we've got ourselves into. Absolutely. And um, we tr- brings me to uh, one of my favorite questions in a
0: context, but which I cannot, cannot ask many people because not many people are dealing with that, um, which is a kind of occultist uh, activism, I think that, well, ceremonial magic, especially organizations like the Golden Dawn or similar, just one example, their aim is not to do magic, not to do that spiritual work for your own sake, for your personal, uh, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, for richness or for for personal uh, positive uh, results, but for for humanity for the planet for uh and and of course what you're suggesting here with Gaia alchemy is exactly that so how could in your point of view that kind of activism be put in a in a broader occultist context if it can be
1: yeah well that's a nice question <clears throat> excuse me i think um what an occultist can do in that sense is to look Learn more about the science of the, of the planet, which is what I try to do in the book. I try to offer that uh, to, the, to the hermetic tradition, if you like. I'm saying, look, here's some of the, the scientific knowledge we have about the way Gaia works, about her life. Isn't this fantastic? This is, isn't this amazing? Shouldn't you, shouldn't, shouldn't you know about this? Could, um, why not work with this as part of your tradition? And to the scientists, on the other hand, I'm saying, look, we have all your wonderful science. Why not bring soul into it? There's no inconsistency between the uh, science and soul. Scientists don't like soul very much. They don't like to bring soul into science. They they have soul in their private lives, but they don't like it in science. So what I'm, I'm trying to say is let's bring these two together, the science and the, the death psychology, if you like, in service of the earth. So it, it's, I know you're saying that hermeticism, uh, hermeticism has been in service of the earth in the past, and of course it has. But I'm suggesting that now we can bring our new modern scientific knowledge about the earth into that work that the hermeticism is doing. And to the scientists, as I'm yes. just sort of repeating myself, I'm saying, why not use these alchemical images to make your science even better? Why not cultivate the use of the imagination? Why not use... Why not receive images from nature, uh, which nature gives us? Because I think these alchemical images have, have come from nature. I don't think we've created them. Why not use them to make our science of Gaia and our understanding of the earth, our scientific understanding of the earth, even better, even sharper, even more effective? So it's a question of integrating what was split apart in our culture long ago. You said something
0: that I find extremely important that um, those images that we use in alchemy come from nature. It's not that we project them on nature, but that nature has brought those images into our well, that's the Jungian approach, I guess, into our common consciousness in our collective consciousness. And
1: that's why we can use them in the alchemy. Is that the way you see it? That's the way I see it, yeah, because my, my scientific colleagues not that they have done this, but I expect them to if they ever read my book they'll say, oh, those alchemical images that you've just invented them you know someone invented them mm. and they're just they're just arbitrary and it's a kind of postmodern attitude you know mm. everything's as good as everything else, everything's being created by human consciousness, and therefore anything human consciousness produces has an equal value well I, I like you and i that's not my experience my right. experience is my only inner experience. And I've had the experience, you know, that these images come from nature. Yeah. Um, we haven't created them. And well, I think when you have that experience, then you realize that there's something very deep going on in the psyche, in the human psyche, that we are actually able to receive images from nature, that nature makes images. Mm. Um, and the imagination I see is, um, our, our ability to receive images from nature is not so much our ability to imagine and create images although it is that secondarily but primarily the imagination comes from nature is imagination i mean people like william blake said this long ago you know and jung as you mentioned so the alchemical images are the way nature speaks to us nature is saying to us humans look i want you to understand me more deeply take these images which i've created for your better understanding one of which i think is the azoth mandala so Mm -hmm, if we, if mm -hmm. we look at it that way then the Azov mandala and other alchemical images have tremendous significance. They're they're beyond human beyond beyond our egos. And when I was writing that book and working on that book, I tended to feel that nature was very happy that the science and the images were being put together um in this sort of way, you know. So yes, I would agree. The images come from nature and that's that's why they're so powerful and so important. Mm-hmm. You and Mm-hmm. On, you sorry. use you use a union
0: uh, citation to quasi open the book. Uh, it's the yeah. it's it's the subtitle of the first chapter when he says modern science demands only half the men, not the whole. Um, uh, I mean, I think we all understand why you chose that, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit because it's
1: I think an yeah. important key for the whole book, right? Yeah. Well, that's my own experience as a scientist, you see. It only demanded half of me. You know, the the rational mind, my rational mind, my quantitative mind, my mathematical mind, um, the bit of me that loves to measure things um, was very important and very beautiful. Uh, But it's only half. It's only half. If you like it's using Jung's four functions, you could say, uh, it's the rational mind, the thinking mind, and the sensing mind, because we, we have to sense things in science, particularly with instruments. If we can get rid of our uh, nature-given sensing and use instruments, that's much better in science. At least that's what the scientists think. Right. But what about what about the other, the other two functions? What about my feeling, which, of course, is not to do with my emotions so much, but about my ability to value things, to, to perceive the value in things? What about my intuition, which is um, to do with knowing where something's coming from and where, where it's going. Um, those tend to be particularly feeling, which is the opposite of thinking tends to be ignored in science. So, uh, I needed to put those together in myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we need to put those together in ourselves as a, as a culture, as a modernity, we, we have to do that if we're going to survive. So we, in, at Schumacher College, we pioneered a master's degree in what we call holistic science. Right. Where we use all four functions together. So we don't throw away thinking. See, the danger is that we throw away thinking. And I, I suppose this happens quite a lot in, in the spiritual community that yeah. rationality and thinking are sort of denigrated. And that's just as bad as what happens in the scientific community, which is to denigrate feeling, which is the opposite of thinking. We we need to put them all those four functions together in order to be whole as, as a culture and as humans. So that's what Jung experienced. Of course, he was a scientist and he experienced this, this, the split in the human psyche and particularly in the scientific psyche. So he knew from his own experience as a scientist that science only, only, only deals with half the human potential and throws away the other half. So uh, why not use alchemy? I mean, alchemy is a, a, a tremendous doorway into those forgotten parts of ourselves as scientists and not as hermeticists, but as scientists. Um, yes. So that was why I tried to write this book. Um,
0: you might be in a very particular position at the Schumacher uh, Institute. And uh, I'd love you also maybe to explain us a little bit more about it, because uh, I'm sure many people don't know that very much about the Schumacher Institute. but. Um, I sometimes speak to um, scientists here, Dean Radin, you probably know him, he was guest on my show, but also people who are academics in the field of occult research, right? And Mm -hmm. every time I speak to those people, they tell me that, of course, they live. No, if I'm saying a dangerous life, I don't mean that literally, but um, mm-hmm. I- I- they are attacked by their co-scientists because they deal with that subject. Um, yeah. Have you made that same experience or is, is you, uh, are you in that protected field of the
1: Schumacher Institute not experiencing that? Well, I am very protected at Schumacher College because uh, we do have contact with mainstream science, but I mean, we're not a mainstream science institution. Right. So, but I, so far, I haven't had any, any problems with my scientific colleagues, mainly because they don't they know I've produced this book. And secondly, because I'm not that, no longer that much involved with mainstream science. I am slightly, but not, not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, because Schumacher College is a place where we can really explore um, leading edge and rather daring ideas. Um, as I said earlier, the main aim of the college is to explore why is it that modernity, our modern culture, has destroyed, is destroying the planet to such a horrendous extent? What, what are the reasons? Why? Why have we done this? And how can we heal ourselves and heal our planet before it's too late? Mm-hmm. That's That's the main reason we have the college. And it's been going now since 1990. Um, and we explore not just different ideas in science, but in economics, in how to grow food, um, in um in education, in fact, in every single field of uh, human endeavour, including science, which is what I've been involved with very much, um, and so here in 1998 we started a master's degree in holistic science, as I mentioned, mm. with some tremendously important uh, scientists and philosophers. For example, Professor Brian Goodwin, who was oh, right. the he was professor of um, biology at the University of of, uh, of Sussex and at the Open University. He was a, a great mathematical ecologist with a, a, yeah. a tremendously wide interest in the psyche of nature and in complexity theory and in systems theory. And I helped him to, to set up the master's degree in holistic science. Mm-hmm. And we had also great Gertian scientists teaching uh, on our course. For example, Henry Bortoft, a tremendously important philosopher of science, but from a Gertian perspective. And then various Gertian scientists such as uh, Margaret Colhoun and Craig Holdridge, would come to teach. And our students have gone on to do very important things in the world as a result of feeling themselves reconnected with nature in this powerful way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but it's not just science that we, we work with at Schumacher College. As I say, there's also economics, uh, design, food growing, education. It's a, and the, the watchword is small is beautiful because E.F. Schumacher, of course, was the economist who wrote the famous book, Small is Beautiful, where Everything should be human scale, small scale, connected to nature. Uh, and that's what we've been doing for so many years now at, at Schumacher College with a, with a great deal of success. It's very small, but very powerful. You know, It's like a, a little piece of radioactive material, if you like, that has a small, but has a tremendous impact in the world. Let's take our musical break
0: now here. And um, if you want to know more about the Schumacher College that we just talked about, Stefan Harding and I... Um, carry on after the musical break because um, he will give us some more indications on where to find it etc and of course also go on to the website because I will put the link to the Schumacher College in that um, in those show notes so please do go there and have a look if you're interested well you should go there and have a look in any case because it's an interesting site the Schumacher College site Good. So I promised you music by George Gordiev and more music by George Gordiev you will get. And actually, as most of his pieces are rather short ones, I will play three in a row for you. Three short pieces, the first being Persian Waltz. Um, and um, after that, two pieces about dervishes. After the Persian Waltz, you'll hear a piece called dervish number three which is subtitled ceremony for a dead dervish and after that um, it's the, the third and last of the three pieces that we hear just now is called the trembling dervish so we'll start with now persian dance then the ceremony for a dead dervish, and the trembling dervish to finish this triplet of three pieces Played by Iliana Bautista and guests um, in a concert in October in Mexico City, you find the whole concert on YouTube, and I'll link you there on the show notes page. Right. So um, yes, and after that, of course, we return to speak again to, to 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 Stefan Harding, and after the interview at the end, another piece by George Gurdjieff, and that last piece will be called or is called Prayer of November 4. Christ Muhammad, Buddha Lama. Prayer of November 4. Um, that will be after the interview. And now I'm not going to repeat all three pieces. We'll start with Persian dance and then it's twice about wishes. You remember? Okay. Enjoy. Thank you.
2: I mm-hmm.
0: I'm fascinated by that, and uh, I'm sure that there are some of our younger listeners here on this show uh, who are asking themselves because I'm sure many of those people are also concerned with the way the world is going and where it seems to be going. Um, how would somebody who is interested in that field and who wants to start um, an academic path, so to speak, how would he get involved with your college? How how What are the the possibilities and the needs
1: also that uh, if you want to become a student at the college? Well, you can just look on the website, look up the Schumacher College on the website. Mm. We're part of the Dartington Hall Trust. So you can either look up the Dartington Hall Trust website or the Schumacher College website, and you'll see there are various degrees and offer. There's a new one just starting very soon and a first undergraduate degree in in, in, uh, ecological food growing, ecological agriculture. Mm-hmm. That's just starting. We have some very large gardens at the college where we're growing food ecologically. Um, and we're showing how we can grow lots of nutritious, organic food um, in ways that don't destroy the planet, in ways that promote biodiversity and human well-being. That's, that's an undergraduate degree that we're just beginning or you can do master's degrees in ecological design, in economics. I mean, if I had been an undergraduate now, my, you know, I'm now nearly 70, but if, imagine if I'd been 19 and I'd found Schumacher College, I would much rather have come here to study a, an undergraduate degree than, than where I did study my undergraduate degree. And certainly for a master's degree. We also have PhD possibilities as well okay so that's thing people could look into oh interesting thank you for that because I, and does
0: spirituality in uh, play a part in all those fields that you approach in the Schumacher College, I mean, you mentioned ecological f- uh, food growing, for example, um, which brings to my mind, of course, anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner's approach to uh, biodynamic yeah. agriculture, etc. Yeah, the, the, Is in all those fields also a certain spirituality present, or is it yes. more in your
1: very field that that happens? No, no, the spirituality is present throughout. I mean, um, for example, meditation, optional meditation is very much part of the, uh, of the college life. If you want okay. people, it's not obligatory, but there's a meditation session every morning. Um, I also teach deep ecology, which is, you could say a, A spiritual approach to nature from my friend, Arnie Ness, the great Norwegian philosopher, who taught at the college uh, many
0: times. May I stop you there uh, uh, just for a moment, because deep ecology, it was one of the key words that I wrote down for our talk here. And now that you mention it, um, that's another one of those words that we often hear. And I am sure 80% of people hearing or even using it don't even know
1: what it means. Now I have you here, (laughs) please tell us what is deep ecology? Okay. Well, let's just take the word ecology first. So it's got deep ecology has two components, deep and ecology. Mm. So let's take ecology. Ecology comes from science, the kind of science I, I, I did. And um, two words itself is consisted, comprised of two words, oikos and logos. Oikos means the household, the earth household. And logos in this sense, not in the hermetic sense, mm. in the scientific sense, just means logic. Right. So it's, it's the rational study. Of the relationships between organisms with each other and their environment, by, by rational, I mean quantitative. You know? so you go out and you measure, for example, how many blackbirds are there in my garden, and um, how much food of different species are they eating? are they eating? How many offspring do they have? How big are their home ranges or their territories?' just numbers, numbers, numbers. It's very important. But Arnie Ness pointed out that these facts about nature that the science gives us won't tell us us how we should live in relation to those facts. How should I live in relation to the blackbirds? Science can't tell me that. So he put the word deep in front of ecology to point out that if we know, if we want to explore how to live in relation to the facts of ecology, we need to ask deeper questions, value questions. So ecology deals with facts. Mm -hmm. The word deep deals with values when we put the two together, we get deep ecology. We, we reunite fact and value, which were separated, of course, during the scientific revolution. We put them back together. And so we develop a complement to ecology, which is, he called ecosophy, ecological wisdom, mm-hmm. ecosophia, mm-hmm. ecological wisdom. Yeah. And each of us needs to develop our own individual ecosophia, ecology, ecosophy. And you see, for me, Gaia alchemy is my own way of developing my own ecosophy which is what I've shared in the book. You know, I've just shared my own particular style of of deep ecology. You could say Gaia Alchemy is deep ecology, my style of deep ecology. Whether other people will enjoy it, I don't know. But I just, I felt compelled from my own inner life to write this book. And so that's my own expression of deep ecology, you see. So Gaia Alchemy is my deep ecology. Right. Right. Well, thank you. That was a very clear explanation of that of
0: that term. And I'm glad we had that because um, it was kind of missing. I'm sure not only in my own vocabulary, what exactly to put on. And let's go back to, to the book, because when I when I see the, the, the book and the different I'm using here the, the titles of the chapters because I don't want to go too deep in detail because people should read that book and use the book, not only read it, but um, um, you speaking about stars, for example, of loops and stars is one of the chapters, right? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. so that goes also a bit beyond our planet itself, right? It's chapter 13 or 12, I believe. Right. um, um and when we hear Gaia, of course, and then we always think of just our planet and that that um, macrocosm of our planet and how it functions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Does, and thus, uh, and occultists tend to see the world also beyond our planet to be to mm-hmm. say gently, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and yes. Does your type of alchemy also imply that or is it? I wouldn't like the word limited, but. I'm not an English yeah. speaker. Maybe you
1: have a better word for me than limited yeah. to to, mm-hmm. to the planet itself. No, it's not limited to the planet. I mean, I think in my book, I've mostly limited it to, to the planet. Mm. No, but alchemy apply. I mean, Gaia and alchemy apply to the whole universe. I mean, these these principles of um, sorry, the seven principle, the seven uh, transformational operations, if yes. you like, uh, apply to the whole of nature. Yes so to the whole universe you know they apply to the whole universe and gaia herself as a as a word from ancient greece and probably from india applies to the whole universe after all the myth tells us that first of all there was vast there was chaos vast and dark mm-hmm. you know this huge intelligence dark i think means that we couldn't under, we can't understand the ultimate mystery yeah and it wanted to become something it was felt lonely in some sort of way it wanted to become something and the first thing it became was gaia uh, the deep-breasted Earth, says Hesiod. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the first thing that Gaia gave birth to was the, was the entire cosmos right. in the myth. So that means that Gaia is both the entire cosmos, the entire universe, and the Earth. In other words, this self-regulating intelligence is a property of the entire universe and, of course, as a subset of the entire universe, of our own planet. So Gaia is both cosmic and earthly at the same time. Mm-hmm. So these principles, these gu- these alchemical principles, apply both to the planet and to the cosmos. They apply, I think, at every level of existence. Um, from the s- microscopic, the subatomic, the quantum, all the way to the production of galaxies and stars, and to space-time, relativity, ecology. It's all mm-hmm. alchemical, and it's mm-hmm. all Gaia. Yeah. I would think that sounds extremely logical to me.
0: uh, And uh, I'm glad you're saying it clearly like that, because I have never heard the term Gaia in the Gaia theory context as as a cosmic experience, always as an earthly planetarian, so to speak, experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I understand very well what you mean. And I think it's, it's much it's much clearer and much better to understand if we see it on the cosmic level, especially in the context with the alchemy that you, that you, that you use here. What about deep time? That's another chapter the Gaia alchemy and deep time. I I really loved that chapter and I would love
1: you to explain a little bit what you, what you tell us there. Well, deep time is, is very important for connecting with Gaia because our planet is incredibly ancient. I mean, we think for, the science tells us that she's around four thousand six hundred million years old. Mm. And that's an, a huge amount of time. Yes. So, one chapter I have in the book, um, and I think we've talked about this, is applying these seven alchemical transformative yes. principles to the history of Gaia over that long span of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing I've, I've, I've done in, um, uh, not in this book, but elsewhere is to develop what what i call the deep time walk um which is where we do this at the college quite a lot i've led maybe well over 100 deep time walks and in deep time walk we take the history of the earth and we walk that history over 4.6 kilometers usually through nature uh, by the sea or on dartmoor near the college or along in the on the dartington hall estate a very beautiful estate Mm -hmm. On that time, on that spatial scale, every meter we walk represents 1 million years of Earth's life, of Gaia's life. Every, every millimeter represents 1,000 years. And we walk that walk, and I tell the story of how Gaia has developed over that time span. And you see, as you're wa- walking, is a kind of, it's a kind of pilgrimage to, yeah. into deep time. And people have very powerful experiences as they do that as we walk what i'm going to do from i'm going to try experimenting uh, from now on is bringing the alchemical operations into the deep time walk I haven't done that yet, you know explaining how calcination yeah. is at the beginning, then dissolution et cetera like we like I explained earlier yeah yeah yeah, so I think that that um walking deep time with the deep time walk, combining it with the alchemical understanding could make the experience even deeper for people. Um, I should say also that we have developed an app called the deep time walk app, which is free. People can download it. If okay. we just Google deep time walk, mm-hmm. you'll be able to download an app um, which will take you on the walk anywhere you want on your smartphone. Um, yeah, I make a note of that and I will also put it in, in the show notes. You of put it, yeah, yeah. Put it on the show notes because the, the, And there are other resources that are available on the deep time walk app website. For example, you can you can learn how to become a leader of it of a deep time walk yourself in your local area. Okay. It's a, we found it's very very powerful way of connecting with Gaia mm-hmm. because it's not just sitting and reading a book; it's actually doing something. It's a walking meditation, right? Know? And if you combine it with what I have in the book with Gaia alchemy, which I haven't I haven't written about that yet very much, but you know it can become even more powerful. Yeah. Which once again, um,
0: I repeat that what I said earlier. This book is not just theory. This book is practical application, right? And especially yes. also, it very becomes very clear in one of the final chapters, which is, uh, I believe, called "Living and uh, Living A Gaian Alchemical Life." Um, real right. meaning, meaning doing it, and practicing it. Um, people interested in that. Um, What what do you expect from them? Is it something that replaces their actual magical activity or or is it a supplementary activity that they should undertake or adapt their actual undertakings in that new way? How do you see that personally when you would suggest to a a person
1: who is already spiritually active? I wouldn't say replace, no, not at all. I don't really want to replace anything. Right. Just to amplify and to explore a new ecological Gaian dimension, nature-based dimension to their activity, their spiritual progress, their spiritual activity. The idea is to bring you more into the presence of Gaia, into the presence of the planet as a a living being Mm -hmm. using the science, because the science is so fantastic and what we know about Gaia and the universe, but let's just stick to God. It's so fantastic from the science, and the science tells us so much that we didn't know before. I mean, if you were an alchemist in the 16th or say 17th century, you you would have thought the Earth was only a few thousand years old. In fact, you, you didn't even know about evolution. You know, you had yeah. no idea that things evolved. You thought God created all like that. Well, now we know that's not. It's even more interesting than that. We know that there's evolution, that there's been natural selection, that there's genetics, that. There's Incredible evolutionary process, Um, and the science has told us that. The science tells us about the rocks and the atmosphere and the water and the light, living and the biosphere, how they relate to each other. I mean, doesn't that deepen our spirituality? Doesn't that deepen possibilities for spiritual practice, for alchemical practice, for magical practice, for hermetical practice? It does. It makes it so much richer. So rather than, I'm not saying hermetical people and uh, are rejecting the science. But we, I think, we should embrace the science yeah. as hermeticism, just like the scientists should embrace the hermeticism. You see, it's a that's why I call the book subtitle "Reuniting of Science, Psyche, and Soul." Absolutely, so we can reunite it. Um, so it's not about replacing; it's about amplifying, and, and 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 it's about wholeness. It's about finding the wholeness that we could have had if alchemy hadn't been so rejected by people like Descartes and the others. You know, in the in the uh, seventeenth and seventeenth centuries it 's about the, the science we could have had if if the alchemy hadn 't been hounded out of uh, out of our conscious minds as it was by people who were far too focused on thinking and on reductionism yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: it just comes to my mind, but you might know that famous nine hundred pager quicksilver by Neil Stevenson, of course, which is all, all about the well, let's call it a fight between Leibniz and and Newton, and that's exactly oh, yeah. that's exactly the subject of what you just what you just I said, think. right? So um, yeah. it's a novel, but it's a it's a great book that that I can only suggest yeah. to our listeners to. to to go for if they're interested in that in that subject. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to ask you a very personal question now. And I hope you don't mind me asking. And if you don't, if you don't want to answer that's of course, absolutely. All right. But um, Uh I guess you are practicing spirituality in your
1: own way yourself, right? Yes, I think so. I, I, I like to. I don't like to talk about these things. Yeah, too much I understand I think that. It, uh, yeah, yeah, it's very. It's. A, I think it's if you personal. talk about these things too much, it sort of it, it breaks the spell, if you like. Yeah, I understand. But yes, that. of course. I mean, I, I I go to my Gaia place as often as I can, and I meditate there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I use certain meditation practices that I've learned. Mm-hmm. Um so yes I'm practice I'm, I'm I'm I I try to pr- I may not be a very good practitioner but I I try you know I yeah. I try sometimes my rational mind is still too strong for my own taste and it won't let me drop down or expand into a wider sense of uh the life of Gaia and the life of our planet but I think I'm learning how to put my rational mind in the place of a servant rather than the master right um i follow my friend ian mcgilchrist i don't know if you've come across his oh yeah sure, master, sure. The master and his emissary. Yes. yes i mean I, I i try to follow that advice so of course mm-hmm. i mean i think uh, and I also i do active imagination for example you know okay um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i carry on with my jungian practice that i learned from julian david my yeah my uh school teacher if you like yeah i'm yeah. Te- deeply grateful to him he has a lovely book small book by the way called a brief history of god by julian david okay that, that's also well, worth well reading mm. because it um it explains very briefly and very well how why it was that our culture went so wrong in relation to nature in relation to the feminine etc yeah. Okay. Important questions. Yes. Absolutely. I'll come to that um, because I
0: think that's kind of a final round then to, to, to round it all up. How, how you see the future of our planet. Uh, a dire question, it might be. But b- before we go there, there's one term that we, that you were using and I found it, uh, well, absolutely right how you were using it, of course, but also I I think we need to underline that once again, you were talking about feelings which are on the opposite side of um, thinking, sorry, thank you. And, um, but you made the difference between feeling and emotion. And I think that is a highly important distinction to make, especially in a world where emotions seem to be. The neck plus ultra uh, in 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 positive being, right? Um, can we maybe be very precise on that distinction between feeling and
1: emotion? How would you distinguish between the two? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's a good question. Well, I would say emotion uh, can occur in each of the four functions. You could say so. If I, in my in my so for for example. When I work with a mathematical equation, when I understand it, when I work with it, when I, when I create one, there's a fantastic emotion associated with that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful mm-hmm. emotion. With mean, mathematics produces the most beautiful emotions. That's my experience of mathematics. Right. I'm not yeah. much of a mathematician, but I'm, I'm good enough to understand what mathematics is. I, I've heard that often from mathematicians, actually. Yeah. 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 It's a beautiful emotion. It's a, I it's a, I can't describe it. It's a sense of the joy of the precision and mm-hmm. of the... You know the the uh, succinctness. It's a miracle, a mathematical equation, when it really works. It's so succinct and beautiful. So There's an emotion there. Yeah. There's an emotion with the sensation when when I when I smell a rose. There's a beautiful emotion, isn't there? When I see a sunset, or when ex- when I experience the rain. There's an emotion. Mm-hmm. When I have an intuition, for example, I I might have a sense of who someone is or where who they are. That's a beautiful emotion. Yeah. And when also when I value something when I, I feel the value of something. That's also emotion. Yes. So emotion comes in different forms in all the four functions. Feeling has its own emotions, just like thinking does and like sensing does and intuition does. But feeling in, in the, the Jungian approach is not so much about emotion. I, I wish he'd use the word valuing instead of feeling. Mm-hmm. If I were able to talk to Jung, I would say, look, don't use feeling, use valuing. That's much, much more precise. Um, he, he called it a rational function because it actually evaluates it evaluates things you know, yeah, like yeah. thinking does. So you can't describe what feeling is because thinking can't describe feeling. Feeling is feeling, but it's, for example, I stand underneath a tree, a, a big oak tree, like I have in my garden. I feel its value. You know, I feel its mm. beauty. I think that beauty is very much connected with what feeling is. Yeah. And it has its own particular emotion. So I hope, I hope I've explained that. I think you do. I yes. mean,
0: the problem, I mean, my, I, I think my English is rather good. I hope, and but still, Very good, yeah. still, it's not my, my mother tongue. So, uh, no, and there no. we also, and it wasn't young uh, Jung and I, we share not only the same oh, yes, German mother bad, bad tongue, yeah. but even the same Swiss mother tongue. So, uh, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> but, and of course the German translations of those words are again, create a different feeling. Yeah. Uh, and the uh-huh. English word in me, and that what makes right. it often so ex- difficult to express yes. yourself uh, uh-huh. with those terms in a very precise way. I see. What is the what is the what's the German word for feeling? What, what, what word does he well, use? feeling, I, I'm not sure what Jung uses, but feeling would be fühlen. Right. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, emotion would be Gefühl. So they are very uh, close. Yes. But of course, when you uh-huh. go to
1: the etymology of those words, you see the difference. Uh, yes, that's right. No, yes, that's a problem, isn't it? The English tra- translation from from Jung's German is clearly a problem. Oh, of here. course, uh, and
0: as yes. is any of those texts, right? Any of being right. any yep. of the yeah, occult yeah. texts the translations of old Arabic Arabic texts, which became Spanish and then now into English or whatever, that's, that really makes it difficult to, 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 to get in depth into those, into those things without proper experience. Yeah. Um, well, I think we need to talk for a few moments before I will let you go about what has been in between the lines from the very beginning of our talk here. situation of the planet of Gaia, so to speak, um, and, um, what are our fears and what also hopes? I think we should try to be also positive, but, um, um, well, i let you speak on that because I'm not going to ask you more because I'm sure you, you, you are going to tell us important things here. Well,
1: I mean, the news, it just does, doesn't look very good, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, I mean, my my colleagues in the climate sciences, and I, I do have contacts with some, some of the very senior climate scientists, um, you know, their models, which are now Gaian models, based on James Lovelock's theory, in other words, they put life into the models, the impact of living beings on climate. Yes. They're showing us that, we're going to get tremendously serious consequences because of what we've done to the earth, because of destroying biodiversity and because of putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere Mm -hmm. because of our lust for growth. I mean, if we don't do anything about it, uh, by the end of the century, it doesn't look like there's going to be a, a a modern civilization left Mm -hmm. at all. You know, it's going, going to be such serious floods and fires and, uh diseases that many of us won't survive our power lines will come down our infrastructure will be destroyed we've already started seeing that this this summer certainly in, in western europe yes certainly in england we've just been through the most horrendous heat wave yeah. and now we've got tremendous drought yeah for example the stream in our garden which has never dried up is now dry hmm. um, so these are warning signs you know now according to some scientists We're already too late to to change things. We've left it too late. Other scientists are saying, well, maybe it's not too late. We've we've got a chance now to avoid the worst. It's too late to avoid climate change uh, uh, entirely, but we can avoid the worst. We may be able to keep the warming down to two degrees centigrade, average global temperature increase above pre-industrial levels and that's, it'll cause tremendous suffering, but it's more or less manageable. Mm. But if we don't stop destroying biodiversity and releasing greenhouse gases, then in the next 50 years or so, we could reach three to four degrees centigrade uh, temperature increase. And that's just going to be completely unlivable for most of us uh, so that's the situation it's it's really the end of days you know it's yeah. the end. we're getting close to the end of days now um term
0: biodiversity because uh, I mean climate change and temperature change and <clears throat> and resource problems that are things that people mostly understand but I understand or I see that many people do not see why biodiversity <clears throat> is a threat to to the to the
1: planet can you can you explain that a bit clear yeah, yeah. for those people that's a good that's very important And let's make clear it's, biodiversity isn't a threat to the planet it's essential for climate regulation mm-hmm. this is what james lovelock showed yeah that um, we need biodiversity to regulate the temperature of the planet and keep it livable we have to have wild ecosystems to do that for example in the ocean there are algae that release cloud seeding chemicals And the clouds they seed are dense and white, and they reflect solar energy to space and thereby cool the earth. They're essential for cooling the planet. Now we know that it's not just the marine algae that do that, the forests do that. Mm -hmm. The Amazon, for example, is so important for regulating our climate climate and keeping it cool. The the Amazon forest, Mm -hmm. in fact, all the forests just about, are releasing cloud seeding chemicals as well. And these chemicals are, uh, sorry, these clouds are cooling the earth. Mm. Not only that, the, the very, all the photosynthetic beings, you know, the marine algae, the forest, the plants, they, they're absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, sure. carbon that we've put into the atmosphere mm. and they help to cool the planet. The marine algae are doing the same. So the a really important point for everyone, for our listeners to understand is that biodiversity is an essential component in, uh, regulating the climate within the narrow limits that life, i.e. us, uh, and other beings can tolerate. This is the key point from Lovelock's Gaia theory, that life is essential for regulating the climate, along with the rocks, the atmosphere, and the water. Right. What was the term Lovelock created maybe two or three years
0: before his death uh, about the human, the anthropo,
1: uh, Anthropocene. Anthropocene, exactly. Yes, yes. That's. I, who, uh, I he didn't. I don't think he created that term. I think it was another scientist called Crutzen who, okay. who created the. Anthropocene. But he used like, it in his latest, in his last book, I believe. right? Yes, I think he did. That's right. Mm. Uh, and the novocene. He called it the novocene. Is the that? Novocene. You? Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Exactly. The Novocene. Yeah. The novocene. Well, that's that's his idea that uh, AI will become the next intelligent form of life created by us. You know, and yeah. it'll sort of take things over. Exactly. Um, I'm not so sure about, but that gives me a creepy feeling. I don't like the feeling of that. Yeah, I I share your feeling and I always think maybe I'm just getting old, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is is that um, to get this kind of consciousness requires the most unbelievable complexity on a molecular level. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that computers will ever be able to mimic that level of complexity. After all, they're just Bits of silicon, you know, that, yeah. um, and circuits that turn on or off. There's like a Boolean system. Yes. Um, I mean, Lovelock was a great genius, so he may, he's probably right, and I'm probably wrong, you know. But I, I don't see how, how electronics could ever become conscious like we are. It's, it's just not physically complex yeah. enough. In my imagination, is exactly what Jung says with, the other half is missing, right? Exactly, the other half is yeah. missing. Yeah. Another thing, remember, Jung, I think... Um, he didn't, where did he write? Somewhere he wrote down, I think before, shortly before he passed away, Jung said he had this vision of most of the earth being destroyed, but not all of it, by, by us. Okay. And that gave him hope. I mean, that's a pretty dire final vision or almost final vision to have. Yes. But it is hopeful in a way that perhaps there will be tremendous destruction. There already is, but maybe there, there is hope in the end for us. And I think if the only hope really is for us to cultivate this union of psyche and science, right? That's that that must be the way forward for us. Absolutely, as a I think that uh,
0: that the uh, psyche and uh, the spirit um, are missing in lots of parts of our world nowadays, and we. I thank you for pointing that out very clearly here in our talk and in your book and in all the work you do. Um, Stefan, thank you so much for your time and for your, for your input
1: and for your, uh, highly interesting thoughts here. Thank you for sharing the time with us. A pleasure. Thank you for your, for your wonderful questions for, for this wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. May, may it do humans and all species and the planet good absolutely we wish that all thank you so much bye for now bye bye
0: Prayer of November 4, Christ Mohammed Buddha Lama by George Gurdjieff, performed by Iliana Bautista and guests and the whole all the music that you heard in this episode was performed by those people and was music by George Gurdjieff, partly helped by Thomas de Hartman, his friend and Russian composer, right? Um, I don't know if you ask me why Prayer of November 4. If someone of you out there does know, um, I'll be happy to learn it from you. Uh, I didn't find the explanation. So maybe you have an idea. Prayer of November 4. Right. And that was the show episode number one of season nine. And it was great to have Stefan Harding as a guest to open this this new season where we're going to have exciting interviews over the next months to share and uh, I hope that you all enjoyed and I thank all of you who have come and listened to this show to have been with us and please do come back next week and why are you going to say what's going to happen next week well another episode episode number two in a week from now and we will again be in Great Britain next week and my guest In episode number two will be Steve D. Steve D. Who has written a book called, well, he has written his fourth book actually called Chaos Monk. And yes, he's talking about chaos magic on one side, about monastism on the other side. How do those things go together? Well, that's interesting. When you see Steve's book titles, they are all a kind of, mystery because you think "Hmm, these are two rather different subjects and then you read or in that case we would go and talk to steve and you find out no finally there is much in common in it and that's what i find fascinating about him and his books so come back next week and meet steve d and find him fascinating as well just as i do right so for the moment this is it and have a safe week and uh, let's hope that the world doesn't become m- even more crazy than it is already. And uh, in order to mm, be sure that this is going not to be the case, take care. Take care of yourself, of your beloved ones. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.